We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Salvation. Being saved. So, on the one hand, to me, salvation seems a strange, even convoluted thing. But on the other hand, so simple, so clear, so straightforward, even intuitive. Because, of course, we all want to be saved. So when I was a kid, my family left California when I was in the middle of the seventh grade year. (coughs) It was a very traumatic move. We had moved already several times at that point. I'd already lived in a few different states and a couple different countries. But this one was rough. It was middle school, and it was from California to Massachusetts. And so it was a rough year, and my parents did something that they wouldn't normally have done, and they spent the money to fly me back to California that summer in order to have a little bit of time with my girl group. But it was, let's see, seventh grade, so I was 12, so it was 1984. And during the year I was gone, all of my old friends had become born-again Christians. And that was not happening in the uh, New England town that I lived in in Massachusetts. In the New England town I lived in, the school would end and the buses would pull off and the Catholics would go to the Polish catechism and the French Catholics would go to the French one and I would just go home because uh, we moved too often to to do church in our family. So I didn't know anything about this born-again Christianity thing when I landed in the airplane and I had a few weeks to spend with my friends. And to make a long story short, they already had a weekend planned up in the mountains, so I was brought along, and it was uh, a retreat of some sort for youth. And this is what I remember about, this is my introduction to salvation. This is what I remember about it. I had just been through this year, no friends, the cafeteria in the middle school, walking in. And here was my girl group, and I watched as one by one, they did, I think, what's called an altar call. So there was music, and there was firelight, there was a lot of ambiance. Um, people were invited to go down the center aisle and to, and I had never heard this expression before, accept Jesus as their personal savior. And if they did that, um, there was a lot of emotion, people came up, people held them, people cried. It was very, very, very tempting to do it. Um, And of course, there was quite a bit of pressure because I was a guest, and um, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so I stayed in the seat, and I watched everyone else go down the aisle, and and I just couldn't do it as much as I wanted to. It just seemed that something was missing for me in that. Um, From what I had understood up to that point in my life, the, the, the salvation had already been given and I, and I was unfamiliar with this concept of, of going up and, and uh, receiving it in this public way. Fast forward several years later, <coughs> so that's the convoluted side in my experience. Fast forward many years later, during the pandemic, everything I thought was holding my life together fell away. 
At first, I tried to prop it up with busyness. There were schedules and checklists on every wall in our house. And for me, a lifelong insomniac, the nights became the time and my bed the place. When and where the falling away was unavoidable. So of course, I started to experience what our tradition calls the dark night of the soul. And uh, it turns out the dark night of the soul is dark for a reason, because you're in bed when it comes for you. <coughs> and I can remember thinking about that moment in California in the mountains when I wanted to be part of that thing, but the ideas didn't seem real to me. They didn't seem sincere to me. And I was afraid that if I did it, I would be doing it for the wrong reasons. And I was remembering that and that dark night of the soul, trying to, s to find the trajectory of my life, the, the parts where it had fallen away and the parts where it was still present. And I can still remember standing in the kitchen of our old house in the middle of the pandemic, reflecting all of this. And it finally dawning on me that the song that they had been playing that night at that altar ca call, and it was a tricked up version of Jesus Loves Me. And I remember at the time being, um, that was a part of my rejection of it because I thought Jesus loves me just didn't seem like something I uh, had any experience of and in that night in the pandemic um, I remembered that and I finally understood this ridiculously silly little jingly kids song and that what it meant and it had meant then was that um, I didn't have to redeem my life I didn't have to do anything to redeem the life that I was freely given and it occurred to me that, that it might not have been my taste, but that that altar call, that song, all of that was offering me a kind of salvation, a salvation that was there for the taking. Um, but I, I wasn't ready at that point. I couldn't wrap my head around, around all those ideas. So here I am doing the lesson on salvation. So first I ask Doug, why do we have to have a salvation story? And he told me why. All the best religions have a salvation story. <laughs> because everybody contains a salvation story, whether they're aware of it as such or not. In other words, stop asking why. That goes from my whole life. Because it's not just a Christian thing, it's a human thing, both at an individual level and at a human race level. So again, why? Why does every culture and religion carry a salvation story? Look around. If you're not old enough yet, having outgrown the child's innate awareness of needing to be protected, even saved from the monster in the closet, and you're now living squarely in the midst of what Richard Rohr calls the creating of the container, the years in which we find our identity and create our significance, or if you're lucky and you come from a calm, stable, secure family, always and already, knowing what and feeling what safety and feels like, then just wait. You'll get there again. Because we walk on a knife's edge between our dual natures, between our physical mortality and our spiritual immortality, between the beauty and consolation of the natural world and the danger and threat of it. And it's sometimes unbearable, and sometimes like a tightrope act, just smile and don't look down. 
and we need to be saved from it by believing wholeheartedly in a narrative that gives our experience both deep meaning in which our spiritual journey walking the knife's edge becomes a heroic thing and a tangible meaning which gives us encouragement to believe that we can do it and tells us how to do it. However, most Christians nowadays have been taught a salvation narrative that explains by binding inextricably together two central stories, events really, which together have become the centerpiece of our faith, the crucifixion and the resurrection but actually can be encountered independently and must be because one of them is literally and metaphorically soaked in blood and the other has been stripped of all of its mystical meaning and left as a kind of leap of faith game of chicken. There's even a name for this salvation narrative and it's not Easter. The penal substitution theory of the atonement. The penal substitution theory of the atonement. So whatever you think and feel about whatever did or didn't happen at Easter, the PSTA <laughs> is far less ambiguous, simplistic even, than the resurrection story, but far more tragic than the crucifixion story in terms of its influence over the Christianity it's come to be equated with. The thing needs to be discarded alongside the theory of the traveling womb and eugenics, in my opinion. I think in all of our opinions. So I realized then, after having this conversation with Doug, that what I'd actually wanted to know when I'd approached him was not why do we have to have a salvation story at all, but why do we have to have a PSTA salvation narrative? I wasn't even raised in church. And even I assumed it was the only game in town. On the one hand, a resurrection story, very, very, very challenging. And on the other, what has become for most people a blood sacrifice story, just plain bad. I'd long ago rejected the latter, but consequently, I'd also dismissed the former. Between the violence of the Christian Judaic heritage, our heritage, and the literalism of the Christianity I grew up looking down on, salvation seemed like a bait and switch. To be saved, you had to buy into original sin. Hard pass. It seems like a cart leading a horse, the PSTA, a justification of an inflexible set of ideas about who what, where, when God is, masquerading as a story to help us understand and accept how and why a terrible thing did and had to happen, the crucifixion. Sure, the theory does say that Jesus took the rap for us, but there's a loophole. To be saved, you have to sign on to the PSTA and therefore the inflexible set of ideas. So, Terrible things continue to happen, at least to other people, non-believers, not us. It's those inflexible ideas that are most problematic about the PSTA. Omniscience, omnipotence, original sin, free will, punishment, atonement. 
because the crucifixion itself isn't an idea. Something terrible did take place. Jesus gave his life in order to open up the Judaic revelation of one God and consented to his own death in order to expand it to its full implications of one reality and of oneness nature. He did die on a cross, robbing the world, maybe, of decades of teaching and learning that might have saved us some centuries of the last 2,000 years of our collective struggle to grasp those insights. And if it could have been left at just that, love does almost always involve self-sacrifice, and gratitude is a wisdom teaching. But the PSTA goes way beyond being a story about self-sacrifice. Blood sacrifice is icky. And the language of punishment and atonement are a deep part of our heritage. That's who we were at one point in our history, and often still are. And though it's tempting to just walk away from it all and become a Buddhist instead of a post-PSTA Christian, this dark history is also the story of how we struggled to reconcile ourselves to both the nature and the condition of our lives, and our ugly, beautiful struggle to understand them. But the PSTA salvation narrative doesn't trust us to struggle or reconcile. Is it that letting Jesus' death just be tragic threatened to destabilize everything? How could something like that have happened if it didn't have to happen? Maybe it's better to live in a mean universe than a meaningless universe. But when people ask questions like that, what they're actually talking about is purpose, not cause and effect. So they force themselves into a position of trying to wreak good out of bad. We're not, as human beings, as good at contemplating events in the other direction. If everything happens for a reason, but backwards, not forwards. We have no control. It's too much. Maybe what we really want is to be saved from the existential fear of having no control. We are tempted by the certainty of the PSTA and to believe that all that salvation can offer is being spared what others are not spared. It's a less frightening way of thinking about our fragile lives, if more dangerous. In his book, Doug writes that he was saved from the excessive focus on me, my, mine that a busy family and career bring, and the use of that busyness to excuse his neglect of others in need, that in his busyness he'd become blind to this need and was saved from this blindness by stories of need and by stories of the unconditional love and acceptance shown to strangers by Jesus. Many years ago, my father's older brother committed suicide. 
I watched the family attempt to control the ambiguity and tragedy of my uncle's life story. He had become addicted to drugs and alcohol. He had tried to save himself by giving them up. But when he relapsed one more time, he'd given up. We all knew about his history because we'd seen it. But he'd also experienced abuse as a child, and no one wanted to know this, even though many in our family had seen it, even shared it. So it became unreal, even though it was true. And I think it was his unreal pain that broke him. When I tried to talk about this, I was silenced with angry accusations. Knowing this would have placed a burden on all of us. They'd all been raised in the same family. I was being raised in the second generation. And even as a kid in my mid-20s, I could see that it was only a matter of time. A PSTA story slowly emerged in my secularized Catholic family. My uncle had been the weakest of the siblings from birth, too sensitive, too creative, not tough enough like the others. I guess we knew about poverty, lack of education, intergenerational trauma, abuse, addiction. His family had all loved my uncle and had tried to help him with money, encouragement, support, but they wouldn't or couldn't take responsibility for the implications of what they were blind to. Nobody could save him because they couldn't see his pain. Nobody would save him because they wouldn't open their eyes. Several years, several years later, my father died when I was 40 and my brother was 35. Of course, I tried to save him, but the blindness metaphor is powerful and I made everybody mad and my endless pointing to what nobody could or would see. My aunts, uncles, cousins, they're almost all lost now, lost to me for sure. Why do we have to have a salvation story? When I say that the crucifixion story is soaked in blood, I'm not being squeamish. The PSTA story about Jesus at Easter has tried to cover up the wild, unruly, ineffable tragedy of these events within an illusion of control. But the price it asks us to pay is the denial of reality. Did God make us the way we are, then get disgusted with us and condemn us to an estrangement from which we could only free ourselves when God sacrificed his own innocent child, which even after the fact we have to jump through hoops to demonstrate our acceptance of? in order to not burn in hell for all eternity? No, of course not. That's all made up. But are we the descendants of ancestors who coped with reality by committing blood sacrifices of animals and children for generations and generations in order to cower before, placate, and ultimately try to exert control over a god whom they perceived as both our creator and our destroyer? Yes, we are. That's a true story. But there's another story inside Easter, 
And we get to decide not merely whether it's a true story, but what it could mean for us 2,000 years later, the resurrection story. It contains the seeds of our best salvation stories. Did Jesus die, then lay dead for three days, then walk out of the grave? Did Jesus die but live on in his followers' rebirth as Christians? We can see in the resurrection story our yearning for a salvation story that doesn't just give us hope, but a fierce, radical, intimate hope. Can the resurrection story even give us hope of life after death? Is it a polite, hygienic, abstract life after death? Is it a literal, physical life after death? Did Jesus' death somehow reveal a transcendent reality to those who experienced it? A brand new category of reality? An existence in which death was not death, but merely a new way of being? Doug's words from his book. We're not the descendants of ancestors who followed a prince who left behind a life in a palace. We're the descendants of ancestors who followed a man born in a barn and executed by agents of an empire. We believe in a reality that is bigger than the impossibility of living after three days dead. We believe in salvation through stories. But we need a better salvation story. In his book, Doug says that even the PSTA can offer a good metaphor. While God's grace is unearned, love is costly. And we should have gratitude for love extended to us and live lives of self-sacrifice. That the trouble is that we have made it the only way we tell the story. There's even value in that story. But our tradition offers several alternatives for the taking. And some of them are up here on the slide. And what I would like to ask is that rather than me talk about them, that we talk to each other about our experience of them. So I have developed all my life habits of, as it turns out, praying for salvation, though I wouldn't have called it that at any point in my life until maybe the last few years. <coughs> for example, one, the one on the slide that speaks to me the most at this point in my life would probably be the I was weak, but now I'm strong. <coughs> so throughout my days, as I encounter various challenges and difficulties, I'll often stop and I'll close my eyes and I'll imagine myself in front of a bowl that's filled with blessings. And I won't ask, I won't beg, I won't beseech. I'll just close my eyes and I'll take from the blessing bowl and I will know that I'm doing so. And slowly, I've been coming lately 
to the next step, I think, which is I take it and sometimes I hold someone, sometimes some of you, in mind and I also give the blessing to that person and hold that person in my mind. We need better salvation stories. And like all stories, they're made up. And we make them up from our own experience and from our own need and the intersection of need and experience. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I am alive. I was kidnapped, but now I've been ransomed. I was weak, but now I'm strong. I forgot, but now I remember. I was blind, but now I see. So I ask you, have any of you had an experience of these better salvation stories that you'd like to offer to us today? So as you think about it, and we all use some of the what are you thinking period to do that, I'll get us started by walking through some of them. I was lost, but now I'm found. We're afraid that our very selves are toxic. We know things are not right, but we can't figure out what to do, and we're trapped, serving vice, unable to access virtue. And when we reconnect with the indwelling spirit of God, when God comes to find us, for no other reason than insatiable love, we realize how safe we are, how safe we always were. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Sin's blindness kills our senses, so we can't see God move or sense the divine presence. But when we shake off our fear of death, which we learned from Jesus' example, sin is conquered along with it. It's the fear of death which causes sin. I've always thought of the denial of reality as the beginning of all sin. And in a way, it's true, because the fear of death is the ultimate fear and the ultimate denial of reality. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was kidnapped, but now I've been ransomed. The experience of Jesus' teachings frees us from the compulsions and fears that dominate us. If we ask to be helped, we will be. And so there is reason to have hope. I was kidnapped, but now I've been ransomed. I was weak, but now I'm strong. We stop succumbing to our false selves when we seek to serve Jesus because we're not wanting to be different. We are borrowing Jesus' strength by totally turning from our former lives and trying to live brand new ones. I was weak, but now I'm strong. I forgot, but now I remember. We've been lured away by falsehood, by illusions, by false beliefs, and we've forgotten our most precious truth, that we are spiritual beings first, and we're set free by this truth. I forgot, but now I remember. I was blind, but now I see. When we see Jesus' example, extending forgiveness and goodness to the lowest among us, our eyes are opened and we begin to see 
through the same lens Jesus did. We see potency, strength, the staying power of love, grace, and mercy in ways that we hadn't been able to before. By following that salvation story, we can be saved from that excessive focus on me, mine, and mine. The salvation story, on the one hand, convoluted, weird, kind of icky. On the other hand, so close to all of us, so intuitive. I'm sure most of us right now can think of something you'd like to be saved from or for, with. So what I'd like to invite us to do is to use the what are you thinking period today to talk about these salvation stories that we need to reflect on and to build up because we need to pass something better onto our children besides the PSTA. Thank you. Little, uh, <clears throat> little jargon for you. You just heard the seven theories of the atonement. <laughs> you probably didn't know that. <laughs> Those of you who are uh, online, we're going to dismiss you now. And we're going to do, you heard Heather talking about uh, a version of what are you thinking here in the room. And we would like to invite you to do the same. <clears throat> but for you to do it on Zoom. Uh, we have found over time that the people who will actually show up for that have a great experience and have gotten to know each other over time, even though they live disparate parts of the whole nation, some overseas, and they still tune in, we get to know each other. So uh, <clears throat> you can get there to that Zoom. Uh, there in the YouTube notes, you'll see the link. Uh, you'll also see it on the front page of our website. Uh, and then when you get there, it may ask you for a um, password if you see that. The password is 1417, <clears throat> 1417. All right, let's dismiss the folks who are online and then do what are you thinking. If you would, please put your hand on your heart and let's remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. The inner light is in us. The fruit of the Spirit is in us. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness are in us. And so, <clears throat> if you would extend your other hand to our city, Let's look for an opportunity this week to share what's already in us with the people that we live with, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. The rest of us are not dismissed. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.